such weighty matters before us today, Father. They bring us to the very heart of Christ's mission, and they reveal much of our heart, too, as we reflect on them. Speak your words to us, we pray today. Make them burn in our hearts. Be exalted and build Christ's church among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One trick in scary movies is what's known as the jump scare. You know what a jump scare is. A jump scare is, well, you can, if, you're, if you watch enough such movies, you can tell when one's coming because the music stops, right, and everything becomes very quiet. And you just know a cat is going to come flying out of the dark or a door is going to slam or, or our hero is going to turn around and here's something awful standing right behind him. These are jump scares because they're meant to startle people. They're meant to make people jump. In fact, recently a, a work was noted, I think, by Guinness for having the most jump scares In a single episode, they had just one after another, after another, after another. Well, we've got something like this in the passage of Scripture we're looking at today. We just are coming off of a wondrous, peaceful, exalted, blessed, blissful scene. And then in these four verses, 20, 21, 22, 23, we have a quartet. I could have called it a quartet of jump scares, but we certainly have a quartet of shockers. So we mustn't let our familiarity with these verses rob us of seeing just how shocking each one of them is. Let's appreciate that together. First shocker, Roman numeral one, Jesus shushes his disciples. Then he strictly charged the disciples that they should say to no one, that he is the Christ. What? Well, first let's review what happened. Roman, uh, capital letter A. What happened? They had been sent out to preach earlier. Go back to chapter 10. Just refresh your memory. Matthew chapter 10. And let's see. They'd been sent out to preach. Jesus picked his apostles. He empowered them. He said, verse 5, don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, there's no embargo on that message. He's told them to say that. Preach, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And um, Peter had just confessed him, in fact, in the verses right before what we're reading now. Peter had, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus pronounced him blessed. He said his father in heaven had revealed this to Peter. He announced that he'd build his church and that Peter would be a, a fully enabled steward uh, of, uh, of the church, uh, of the foyer, as it were, to the kingdom of the heavens. That's what happened before these verses. So now we have to ask ourselves, capital letter B, what happened? <laughs> We've seen what happened, so now our question is, what happened? Why does he say, after all this, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ? He's just pronounced Peter blessed for saying that he was the Christ and saying that he would build his church on that confession that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what would you expect him to say? I would expect him to say, now go tell everybody, right? Wouldn't you? Isn't that the most natural thing? Go tell everybody that I'm the Christ. But in fact, what he does say is, Tell no one. Well, that's a shocker. That's the last thing I would expect him to say. Imagine a preacher, imagine me, if you can, at the end of a service, uh, preaching Christ through the service, and at the end of the service saying, go in grace, and remember, don't tell anybody any of this. Can you imagine that? I hope not. I hope not. This is a shocker to hear Jesus say it, and it's the first shocker. So what is it that's going on here? Well, remember the build-up to this verse through the Gospel of Matthew. What was the previous message? We just refreshed our memory. We actually see it first in John the Baptist preaching in chapter 3. In chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach. And when he preached, what did he say? Same, that's the same thing that John said. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And he sends them out to preach the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Now I want to ask you, how did that go? Well, turn to chapter 11. You're right there if you're in 10. Remind yourself by looking at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. The message was repent, and they did not. 
And I just remind you that we see in chapters 11 and 12 these cycles of rejection, as I believe I called them, uh, intensifying and climaxing in chapter 12. And Jesus says this is the response of this generation to the preaching of repentance. And we see it in chapter 12. Uh, Let's see, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons. See, this, this is where it climaxes. The leaders of that generation say that what Jesus, in fact, was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit, oh, no, 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 here's the explanation. We've worked this out. He's doing it by the power of Beelzebul. He's doing it by the power of Satan. And so Jesus says that that is the unpardonable sin, verses 31-32. Every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not find forgiveness. And they've committed that Uh, blasphemy, and that sin becomes the sin of that generation. As he goes on to say towards, through the end of the chapter, he's talking about that generation and how that generation does not respond to something greater than Solomon, something greater than Jonah. They don't respond, and so he says, this generation is going to be like a guy who has an evil spirit, but the evil spirit just decides to leave him, and when it comes back, he finds that the man's all morally reformed now. And he's a much, much better man. He's got all sorts of rules and all sorts of rituals. No God, but he's got all sorts of rituals. Very moral, very pious man. And so does the demon do. He gets seven of his uglier friends and absolutely ruins that man. And what does Jesus say at the end of verse 45? That is the way it will also be with this generation. So they have responded to his preaching by rejecting it and him. And in fact, still in chapter 12, if you look at verse 14, they were planning how they might destroy him. So that's what comes before this shocking verse. And what comes right after this shocking verse? You can do this math. I know you can. What comes after verse 20? That's right. And what does verse 21 say? From then, Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary for him to go away to Jerusalem and be killed. And how did they respond? Verse 22, Peter says, God spare you. This will never happen. So they did not, the people rejected this stunning message to them of simply to repent. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't respond to Jesus. And so now that he's confessed as the Christ, well, clearly even his disciples don't get it, right? Peter, the one he just pronounced blessed, even he clearly doesn't get it. And he tells, he corrects Jesus. <laughs> he, he tells Jesus he's wrong. That's never going to happen. So let's come back to the question then. What happened? Why does Jesus tell the apostles not to go out and tell everybody that he's the Christ? I think two very simple reasons. First of all, they didn't even really understand yet what it meant for him to be the Christ. Right? Didn't we just see that? He said, that's the right confession. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, no, God forbid, God spare you. That's not going to happen. He rebukes Jesus. So clearly they don't really get what it means to be Messiah yet. So they're not the ones to preach the message. And the second thing, obviously, people aren't prepared to receive it. They're not the ones to preach it and people aren't going to get it. They didn't even respond to the simple message to repent. If they hear Jesus is the Messiah, they are sure to get it wrong. They are sure to get it wrong. So he tells them, and this is the first shocker, tell no one that I am the Christ. Leads us to the second shocker, Roman numeral 2. Jesus shows his sacrifice. Jesus shows his sacrifice. Shows, yes, because it's another S, but also because it's the word Matthew uses, and it is very important. Jesus shows his sacrifice. Let's talk first, Roman numeral A. No, I keep doing that. Capital letter A, sorry. About the shift. The shift we see here. From then, Jesus began to show. Now, this is Matthew signaling that this is a new message Jesus is bringing out. This is the first time Jesus is going to say this in Matthew's gospel so plainly and so openly. The first time he's going to come out and say that he's about to go to Jerusalem for the express purpose and with the expectation of dying. So he'd hinted at this earlier, but only in very subtle ways. Chapter 9, verse 15, he said that the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will mourn. 
But would anyone have concluded from that that he would be going to Jerusalem to be rejected and die and crucified? No, it was a subtle hint. That was 915. Now 1240, he says that the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now to you and me, that's very obvious, but clearly it was not obvious to them. It may have been one of those things that they looked at each other confused and said, ask him what he meant. No, you ask him what he meant. No, you ask him what he meant. And nobody asked him what he meant. Uh, Was this a metaphor? Was this heart of the earth meaning he'll be in obscurity or he'll be in a retreat? But their head would not have gone where things actually went. They would not have gone to what Jesus meant. This is just a hint. Well, had he talked about death? Well, you see, he had talked about death, but not his. He talked about the possibility of their death. Chapter 10, verse 21, brother will betray brother into death. He's preparing them for what their, their mission may involve. Brother will prepare, uh, betray brother to death and a father his child, but no mention of his death. Same chapter, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, his message to them, not saying that he's going to go die straight-up prediction of his death, this is the first time we see it in Matthew's gospel on Jesus' lips. So that's a, quite a shift. It's a shocking shift. But now let's talk, capital letter B, about the show. Matthew says, from then Jesus began to show his disciples. Does that word stand out to you? I think it's one of those simple words you might pass over as if it said, He began to tell his disciples, or he began to teach his disciples, or even he began to explain to his disciples. All of that would make sense, right? But it's not what Matthew says, is it? What does he say? He began to show his disciples. Well, that's an interesting word, show, deknumi in Greek, and it means to, uh, to exhibit something. It means to prove something. It means to demonstrate something. You know, like we say, show your work. This is kind of like that. This is showing the work. This is putting it out on the blackboard and explaining it. I want to skip ahead to a use of it in Acts chapter 18 uh, of the preacher Apollos, uh, who was a powerful preacher, eloquent, strong in the Scripture. And what did he do in Acts 18.28? Acts 18.28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And that word Demonstrating is the same verb, just with a little preposition added to the front of it. Demonstrating, showing them exactly, showing them precisely from the Scriptures. So this is how Apollos explained that, uh, who Jesus was and the significance of what he did. So how do you suppose Jesus showed his disciples? I suppose the same way. I suppose he did it the same way, and I've got good reason, as I'll show you in just a moment, good reason to suppose that. But when it says that Jesus showed his disciples, note that. He explained this to them. He demonstrated it to them. I, I take it that he went to the Word of God and he showed them in the Word of God. I, I would imagine briefly, but in a summary fashion, showed them that Scripture said that this needed to happen. That's the show. But now let's talk about the heart of the shock. Letter C is the heart of the shock here. And what is the shock? The shock is that this nightmare cluster of events that Jesus lays out is not merely an eventuality, but a necessity. The shock is that it's not merely an eventuality, but a necessity. Or to put it in other words, he doesn't just say, this is going to happen. What does he say? This must happen. It is necessary that this happen. This has to happen. Well, you know, honestly, the first one would be shocking enough. They see who Jesus is. They see his character. They see his power, his purity, his holiness, his wisdom. They see all this. And he, he tells them he's going to go to the seat of their religion. Uh, and he's going to be rejected by the experts, by the leaders. And not just rejected, but killed. And then rise the third day from, from the dead. Well, hearing that was going to happen, that would be pretty stunning. But Jesus says it has to happen. It's necessary. It absolutely must happen. So what must happen? Four events, Jesus says. Very specifically, four events must happen. First, he must go away into Jerusalem. Second, it's necessary that he suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. 
Third, it is necessary for him to be killed. Fourth, it is necessary for him on the third day to be raised. So notice that each element is absolutely and equally a necessity. If one of those things must happen, then all of those things must happen. They are all equally necessary. It is just as necessary that he go to Jerusalem as it is that he be rejected. It is just as necessary that he be killed as rejected. It is just as necessary that he rise on the third day as be killed. All of these are absolutely and equally a necessity. So note, just looking at this uh, in an overview fashion, just how specific and certain this prophecy is. Just like charismatic prophecies aren't. They're full of wiggle words and, and vaguenesses, and then when they do get uh, specific, like that Donald Tr Trump will win his second election, as was prophesied by charismatics, when they do get specific, they're just wrong, <laughs> uh, which is why they uh, hedge their bets and are vague in general in the other prophecies. Uh, you know, you hear such momentous prophecies as something big is going to happen. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> now I know that. I can prepare for something big. But Jesus, unlike that, says specifically where he's going, what's going to happen there, by whom, what after, and what after. And notice that the final thing that he says must happen is that he must rise from the dead. It is just as necessary that he rise from the dead as that he be killed. Now, uh, uh, a skilled prognosticator might predict something like the first three, but that third one, that's the kicker. <laughs> Prophesying that he would rise from the dead. You know, that's been said sometime. I remember, I think it was around the time of the French Revolution, somebody lamented that they weren't getting as many followers as, as Christianity had. And somebody said, well, all you got to do is die and rise from the dead. You probably have much better chances, you know. And well, sure enough. And Jesus said that he was going to do exactly that. Why is it necessary, though? Let's ask that question. They're all necessary, Jesus says, but why are they necessary? Are they necessary because people are just so boneheaded? Well, that they are, but no. Is it necessary just because Jesus wants to make a lovely gesture? Well, no, it's not that. Is it necessary because he has a death wish? No, no, I seem to remember if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, so no, it's not that. So why is it necessary? Simply because it is the plan of God. That's why it's necessary. Because God decreed that this would happen from before the foundation of the world. If he had elected people to save, and he did, specific individuals, Ephesians and other verses tell us, if he elected to save them, then he must have decreed the means of their salvation. And is there any other means of salvation other than the death of Christ? Hint, no, there are not. So if he decreed the ends, he decreed the means as well. And Acts says this in just so many words, that this is what his hand determined would happen. Every action of every sinful man was taken in in the plan of God and decreed by the plan of God to be a certain eventuality. It is necessary, he says. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, uh, he speaks of Jesus as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ foreknown before the foundation of the world, obviously not just meaning that God knew about him, but that in God's electing plan, this had been certain in the decrees of God, that he would shed his blood for his elect. So this was necessary because God decreed it to be necessary. This is the God of the Bible we're talking about, not the God of popular mythology, Christianoid or otherwise, the God whose scripture tells us, uh, Romans 11, from whom, through whom, and unto whom are all things. The God who, as Ephesians 1.11 says, works all things according to the counsel of his will. The God who, is, as Psalm 115.3 says, does according to his pleasure in heaven and on earth. This is that God, and that God decreed that these things must happen, and that's why prophecy could tell of them. Not just because God had his little magic looking glass to see what was going to happen all by itself, but because God knew himself. And knowing himself, he knew everything that would happen because he decreed it. He's God. He's not a spectator. It must happen. So let's look from another angle and, and ask then, why is this such a shock? Well, what was Jesus' favorite word for himself, his favorite phrase, expression? He called, that's right, he called himself the Son of Man. Son of Man. Anybody remember, extra bonus points, you know, and extra of none is 
whatever. Uh, but extra bonus points. Anyone remember what book of the Bible that phrase comes from, Son of Man? Daniel, right. Anybody remember the chapter? Nine is a great chapter. I heard somebody say seven. I love chapter nine, but it's chapter seven. Anyone remember the verses? All right, then. <laughs> you ask too much. Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. I just remind you, this is worth taking a look at, just to put yourself where their heads are. They hear Jesus calling himself the Son of Man all the time. What's the career of the Son of Man? Well, in Daniel 7, the kingdoms of man come up like scary nightmare beasts out of the ocean. But then comes another kingdom, not from the ocean and not a scary nightmare beast. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Oh, that's glorious. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? There's the Son of Man. Just one little question. Where's the cross in any of that? Where would you ever infer the shameful, cursed death of the cross in any of that? And the answer to that question is nowhere. You, you would never see that there. You wouldn't get that out of those verses. And they didn't. And of course, because it's not in those verses. It's in other verses. Old Testament's a big book. It's not in that part of the book. It's in another part of the book. However, this is what was in their mind about the Messiah. So that's why Jesus had to show them and what Jesus showed them is he showed them from the other scriptures that point to the necessity of his death. Now, how can I say that so confidently? Uh, I'm glad you asked that. Let me show you. Look at Luke chapter 24. You say, oh, good, I know that story. Terrific. Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 24. And verse 25, we've got these uh, two disciples on their way uh, to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them, and they're talking about what happened. It's, it's seen one way, it's just a hysterical story. It's tempting to talk about it, but I just want to focus on one bit. I just, I mean, I love, they, 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 he says, what are you talking about? And they say, oh, about uh, the things uh, that have happened recently. And Jesus says to them, what things? You know, that just cracks me up. He just, with this blinking, innocent expression, he says, oh, what things? You know, please bring me up to date. <laughs> and so they say, well, about Jesus. And we had great hopes in him, but he died. And what does he say? Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Oh, there's the same word Matthew quotes Jesus as saying. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? So he expected them already to know this. Why? I take it he taught them. You say, oh, preacher, you're speculating. Not really. Look at verse 44 when he appears to the disciples later. There he is showing that he's physically resurrected. And what does he say to them? These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must. That's actually the same Greek word quoted in Matthew. It is necessary for all these things to be fulfilled. So this just increases the, their, their, their crime and the reason for his rebuke of them for not believing these things because he had in fact taught them these things. And I think this is one of those places. He showed them. It says he showed them. Bishop Ryle, writing in the 1800s, helps us understand the emotional impact here. He says it is almost impossible for us to conceive how strange and incomprehensible these things must have seemed to his disciples. Like most of the Jews, they did not understand that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, the suffering servant, must be literally fulfilled. They did not see that the sacrifices of the law were all meant to point them to the death of the true Lamb of God. They thought of nothing but the second glorious coming of Messiah. They thought so much of Messiah's crown that they lost sight of his cross. That was true. It remained true. It's still true. Uh, 
You see in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Uh, I read um, from a book called A Dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, written in the second century, just a hundred years later, Justin Martyr and a Jewish man named Trifo. And Martyr, uh, Justin Martyr shows him from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. And he makes a lot of progress with Trifo, but Trifo just comes back in this one chapter and says, you know, I see all that, but what I don't see is how Messiah died on a cross. A hundred years later, it still is just inconceivable to them. It still is today. I've read Jews saying the same thing. If Jesus was the Christ, where's the kingdom of God? But this is exactly what Jesus showed. However, it was shocking. It was shocking. It's still shocking. So, first two shockers, Jesus shushes his apostles instead of telling them to go tell everyone. He shows, not that he's about to take the kingdom, but that he's about to be rejected and die. That's the second shocker. What's the third shocker? Peter scolds his Lord. (laughs) Every word about that ought to shock you, just all by itself. How do you put the words scold and Lord together? And yet Peter manages to do it in the same sentence. He says, Lord, no. (laughs) Those words just are not supposed to go together, but Peter puts them together, bless his heart, in the most southern sense of the phrase. So let's let's, uh, first expound these words. And Peter, taking him to himself, began to rebuke him, saying, God spare you, Lord. This absolutely will not happen to you. So I'll just break it piece by piece. Peter, taking him to himself. Now, there's a little word, post labominos. It means that he like took Jesus under his arm as if he were a peer. He takes Jesus aside, you know, like a teacher might pluck a student out of a class for a reprimand, like a boss might have a, 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 a meeting with his employee. Uh, he takes him aside so that he can reprove him, so that he can tell him how wrong he was. He, but but just, just that fact, he takes him aside as if he were a peer. He takes him aside to himself. He's just told Peter that he's, you know, he's the rock and that he's going to get the keys to the kingdom. And so he immediately hears Jesus saying this awful stuff and he's going to flex himself and swing that key around and he's going to set Jesus straight. He didn't catch the, the, the future tense of that verb. I'm going to do it. I don't think he has the key yet <laughs> at all in any sense of the word. But he takes him aside like a peer and began to rebuke him. Rebuke means to, to say you're wrong, to, to correct him, to scold him, to censure him. So you shouldn't talk that way. You shouldn't say things like that. Peter, to the person he just said was the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, but you see, that makes sense because to him, what Jesus just said does not flow with being the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ, the son of the living God, not going to Jerusalem and dying and being rejected. So he's going to help Jesus. He's going to help him. Peer to peer. Don't you love that picture? Totally can't identify with it, right? None of us would never give God advice or tell him that he'd handle something wrong. No, no. But Peter does that. Well, he's stupid. That's why. Totally not like us, ever. Takes Jesus aside and he tells him, no, no, you got this wrong. You got this wrong about what the Messiah does. You got this all wrong. Let me help you. He says, now these words are so deep and so hard to translate, um, but I like the way I translate them, and I'll explain why. God spare you, Lord. Now, very literally, the Greek words are propitious to you, Lord. You say, that doesn't help me. Well, but we need to start there. Propitious to you, Lord. Now, it's it's an idiom, and it's an expression. And like when we say mercy, that's shorthand. What's that shorthand for? God have mercy, right? We say mercy, but we mean may God have mercy. But it's gotten to where we just say the one word and and all of it's understood. Well, so likewise here, Peter just says propitious to you, and it's understood that he's saying may God be propitious to you. Well, now, what does propitious mean? Uh, Some of you at least will remember that a propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. It's meant to appease the wrath of God. So that when a propitiation is made for me, God is no longer wrathful towards me. He's not going to pour his wrath on me. He's not going to judge me and punish me. So what is Peter saying when he says, may God be propitious to you? 
He's saying, may God spare you of this horrible thing you just said. May God have mercy on you. May God show you mercy so that this horrible thing won't befall you. And then he goes on to say, this absolutely will not happen to you. I mean, just marvel at that for a moment. Jesus just said, this must happen. And Peter says, it won't happen. Wow. We've got to feel the shock of that. How Peter scolds him, but he says to him, God, be propitious to you. Boy, I just really want that to stick. We're going to come back to that. God, be propitious to you. God, spare you, Jesus. Let's reflect on that a little bit then. On the one hand, well, really, who can blame Peter? I mean, really, humanly? Can't you sympathize with him? What would you think of somebody who could hear Jesus say this about himself and say, okay, sounds good. You're going to go get rejected and killed and die a horrible, shameful death. Well, you know, if it's got to happen, I guess it's got to happen. Would you think that person cared very much about Jesus? No. You tell somebody, I'm going to go to the hospital and have a horrible surgery and I might die, and that person says, well, best of luck. You know, you think, okay, I thought we were better friends than that. doesn't seem to concern you much. Well, uh, Bengal says, writing uh, hundreds of years ago, he said, Peter had received the other doctrines without making any objection. In other words, he could say that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but this took him a step too far. He could say the one, but he couldn't say this. He couldn't see this happening to Jesus, even if Jesus says that it's going to happen. Spurgeon says a little bit more. Spurgeon says, Peter would even drive such an idea out of our Lord's mind. Should we not have done the same, Spurgeon asks, had we been there? If, if we had been as much concerned for the honor of our Lord as Peter was, should we not have been horror-stricken at the idea that such a one as he should be put to a cruel death? So, yes, I think that in, in one way, who could blame him? And you certainly can sympathize with that reaction. And notice, too, then that Peter, at this point, he's not infallible. His first papal encyclical was a real failure. Uh, but he's not without grace. He's not without grace. What did Peter, Jesus say about Peter? He was of little faith, but he did have faith. And this teaches us. Now, I plan to return on this uh, in, a, in a few weeks and look more closely at this. But it does tell us that genuine believers can err horribly and still have grace. Peter is a genuine believer. He is a saint. Later, he shoots his mouth off, and Jesus says he's going to bring him back, and he'll be restored. So Jesus isn't giving up on Peter, even though Jesus, Peter says, makes a, a horrible error here. Believers can err. Believers can err badly. So badly that they even earn the name Satan from Jesus, as Peter does here. But still he had grace. Still he had grace. Still he had faith. Jesus doesn't give up with him. Jesus rebukes him back and restores him eventually. So we can sympathize with him, but on the other hand, well, how can you not blame him, really? He takes aside Jesus as his equal and would correct him. Now, what's wrong with that math? Everything. Everything's wrong with that math. He's in no possession to... But, but Peter follows his heart, see? He felt absolutely sure. He was so sure of this, he didn't even need to question himself. Can you sympathize with that? I can, sadly. That, that's our race. He's so sure he's right, he doesn't even need to ask himself whether he might not be right. And so he goes with his heart, unjudged by the Word of God, unsubmissive to the Word of God, which presumably Jesus had just spoken to him. He follows his heart, and he does it out of a misplaced love for Christ. Did he mean well? Sure did. It was a love for Christ, but it was an unsubmissive love for Christ. It was a self-willed love for Christ, was it not? Do you see that? It was a self-willed, not disciplined by the Word of God. I, I, I hasten to tell you that most heresy and false teaching is born of just such love. A misplaced love, unsubmissive to the Word of God. Every heretic, every Christian heretic thinks he's saving Christianity. That if we don't get rid of this doctrine or embrace this better doctrine, Christianity will fail. And so out of their great love for Christ, they do just like Peter and they dive right off into error. Do you see that? And that's, that's what Peter does here. He may mean well, but he doesn't mean well well, <laughs> if you see what I'm saying here. So on the one hand, 
who, who could not sympathize, but on the other hand, who could not not sympathize? And on the third hand, who hasn't been Peter at some point? Who, who of us have not felt so strongly something that we don't even think that something needs to be brought to the bar of God? We are so sure God handled something wrong. We're sure, so sure some scripture must be wrong. We're so sure of something we're about to do, we don't even need to slow down and check it carefully by the word of God, carefully and humbly by the word of God. And we go just as wrong as Peter does when we do something like that. So Jesus shushes his apostles. That's a shocker. He shows his apostles about his sacrifice. That's a shocker. And Peter scolds his Lord. That's a real shocker. Now the fourth shocker, Jesus scorches his rock. Jesus scorches his rock. S-C-O-R-C-H-E-S. He scorches his rock. But he turning to Peter, yeah, sorry, but he turning said to Peter, go back behind me, Satan. You are a trap stick to me because you are not mindful of the things of God, but instead the things of men. Wow. That will ruin your whole day. So let's first begin with recollection. What did, Peter, what did Jesus just said to Peter? Let's recollect what Jesus just said to Peter. He said, my father revealed this to you. Now he says, you're Satan. He just said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He now says, you are Satan. He just said that he would have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And what he bound would have been bound. And what he loosed would have been loosed. And here he calls him Satan, says he's a trap stick. He was a rock. Now he's a trap stick. He was blessed by the Father. Now he's Satan. He was going to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and now he's not mindful of the things of God, but he's mindful of the things of men. Wow, that's quite a contrast, isn't it? But we need to keep that in mind to understand and to do some rumination, uh, verse B, rumination. That's what a cow does uh, with grass. Chews it over and over, passing it from stomach to stomach. Well, we just got the one stomach, but let's chew it over together and see if we can begin to get some of the meaning out of these words. Now, as I said, I mean to return to this, just a couple of aspects of this, uh, why some of this may seem uh, a bit brief to you. We'll, we'll get back to it, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But uh, rumination, first let's consider the bitter ironies, and I just touched on them. Jesus had blessed Peter and called him a rock. Now he calls him Satan and a trapstick. So what, what does that mean? First of all, he turns, and the other Gospels tell us that he turns and he sees the disciples. So this tells us more about uh, what's in Jesus' mind. The, the Gospels are not like these books that spend 400 pages telling you the color of every flower and the size of every rock. You know, there's not a lot of unnecessary narration and description here. So when Matthew tells us Jesus turned, that's worth noting. And the other Gospels tell us he turns and he sees all the other disciples. So what he says, he says for their benefit as well as for Peter's. They've heard Peter say this. They've seen Peter take him aside. And so this can't be let go. Jesus has to address it. So he turns to him and he rebukes him sharply, sharply calling him Satan and a trap stick. Well, well, who's Satan? Where had we seen Satan earlier? Well, we saw him back in chapter 4, right? The temptation in the wilderness. And what's Satan trying to do with Jesus there? If you're the Son of God, he says. Now, Jesus has been hungry. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't drank 40 days. Satan says, if you're the Son of God, command these rocks become bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Angels will catch you. And then he says, bow down and serve me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, what's the effect of all this? What's the effect of all this? Generally speaking, don't submit to the Father and trust Him. Specifically speaking, don't go to the cross. Exert your own will, worship me, and you'll get the kingdoms without the cross. That's Satan's line. What does Peter say? 
pretty much the same. Doesn't he? What did Jesus said? It's necessary for me to do this. Why is it necessary? Because the Father had decreed it. What does Peter say? Not necessary. Don't do this. Well, Jesus recognizes behind Peter's voice the voice of Satan. And it's interesting what he says to him, words we are inclined to skip over maybe, but he says, go back behind me, Satan. In just a a couple of words, he's going to say, if anyone wants to come behind me. He's going to use the same Greek expression for being a disciple. So what's he saying here? He's not just saying, get out of my sight. He's He's not rejecting Peter. What's he saying to him? Get back in place. Your place is not side by side as my peer advising me. Are you following me? No pun intended. Your place is behind me, following me. Get back behind me, he says to him, Satan. And then he says, you're a trap stick. What's, what's a trap stick? Well, it's like in a, in a mouse trap, it's the little tongue that the cheese rests on, and the mouse nibbles at the cheese, and, and ostensibly the trap is supposed to Come, and in case you're, unless your mice are very clever, in which case you smear peanut butter on it to make it harder <laughs> to get away with it. But they do that, and then the, the trap is sprung, and they're trapped. That's what the trap stick is. It's like that. That, that, tr- that triggers the trap. And he's saying that Peter is a trap stick to him. Stumbling block is not as helpful, I think. He's a trap stick. He sees in Peter's words a trap. What's the trap? Exert your will over God's. Do not submit to your father. Walk the way that seems best to you. Follow your heart. You're a trap stick to me, he says, and he calls him Satan. Like Satan, Peter would steer Christ away from the cross. Like Satan, Peter would advise Christ not to submit to his father. Peter meant well, yes, he meant well, but he did not do him well. As Spurgeon says, his dearest friend was his direst foe when he would put him off from his life work. And what was his life work? What does he say in John's Gospel? My food is to do the will of the Father and to finish the work he gave me to do. But Peter says, no, no. God spare you. This will never happen to you. I tell you what, friends, that's a shocker. All of that is a shocker to see Jesus have to scorch his rock like that. So he tells him to get back behind him where he belongs. In verse 24, he's going to talk about disciples needing to get behind him. But Peter's words take him back to Genesis 3. And what what happens in Genesis 3? Satan appears as Eve's best friend just to have a discussion with her over whether God's way is really the best way. And his conclusion, it's not. For her to do what seems right to her, that's the best way. He hasn't really changed his, his, his approach that much because it works so well. Well, it works really well, except this one time. Except this one time. With Jesus, absolutely fell flat every time. And so it does here. Now, uh, in closing, I want you to think about how... How severe Jesus' words are. Now, I may not need to explain this to you. You may see very easily why Jesus had to speak so harshly, so cuttingly, so abruptly. Is that a jump scare for you? To, um, to Peter in such unsparing language. I mean, it really doesn't get a whole lot worse than that. And I wouldn't advise anybody to do that with anybody except yourself. I do think it's useful to say to yourself sometimes, you know what? You're just talking like the devil right there. You're thinking just like the devil right there. I think that's worth saying to ourselves. Probably not to our spouse or our kids or our parents or our friends. I would probably not recommend that. But unless you're Jesus, which um, none of us is. But sometimes to ourselves, yeah, it's worth saying. But, but why does he... What is it about this that is so monumental that Jesus pulls out such a scorching response. Um, Because this has to do with penal substitutionary atonement. A doctrine I've taught you many times. It's simply the gospel. 
penal substitutionary atonement. The fact that Jesus' death was in the stead of God's elect. He takes their place. He takes the penalty due them and absorbs God's wrath in their stead. Penal substitutionary atonement. And so as a result of his work, their accounts are paid, they're cleared, and God can forgive and accept them. That's the gospel, penal substitutionary atonement. We just sang it, uh, we've sang it a, a few times actually, but wonderfully in this one hymn, bearing shame and scoffing rude, listen, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon, what? With his blood. That is penal substitutionary atonement. And you read some people say, well, that's one of the theories of the gospel. It's the gospel. Lose that, you lose the gospel. Again, the Bishop of London writing in the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, wrote very well. At length, I'll quote him. We cannot have clear proof of this, that is the importance of that doctrine. We cannot have clearer proof of this than the language used by our Lord in rebuking Peter. He addresses him by the awful name of Satan, as if he was an adversary and doing the devil's work in trying to prevent his death. He says to him whom he had so lately called blessed, get thee behind me, thou art an offense unto me. He tells the man whose noble confession he had just commended so highly, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Stronger words than these never fell from our Lord's lips. The error that drew from so loving a Savior, such a stern rebuke, to such a true disciple, must have been a mighty error indeed. Then he goes on, The truth is that our Lord would have, would have us regard the crucifixion as the central truth of Christianity. Right views of his vicarious death and the benefits resulting from it lie at the very foundation of Bible religion. Never let us forget this. And then he says that men may disagree on a lot of relatively unimportant things. They may do that, but he says on the matter of Christ's atoning death, as the way of peace, truth is only one. If we're wrong here, we're ruined forever. Here let us take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all our hopes must be that Christ died for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 and many other verses. Give up that doctrine, he says, and we have no solid hope at all. Four shocking events. Four jump scares. A quartet of shockers. Now, uh, in, in wrapping it up, I, I want to point out very clearly, uh, as Spurgeon says, yes, indeed, Jesus shushed his disciples, but we are under no such embargo. So none of us should say, well, I never witnessed to anyone because after all, Jesus said, tell no man. That is not what he says to us. Read to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, go make disciples of all the nations. That's his word to the apostles. We're in the church that they taught. We're to go into all the nations and make disciples. Uh, tell no man does not apply to us. But return to Peter's words, and that's where I really want to end up as we turn from the sermon to communion. What does Peter say, literally, did I say? Propitious to you, Lord. May God be propitious. In other words, may God spare you his wrath. Think about that. What if God had spared Jesus his wrath? Where would we be? What if Jesus had said, you know what, you're right. I'm not the one who should be under the wrath of God. <laughs> By no righteous standard should I endure God's wrath. I hate the very thought of it. It's going to be very hell to me. You're right, I won't. I will be, I will choose to be propitious. I will spare myself the wrath of God. Had he done that, where would we be? Doomed to hell with no hope. Our only hope is because Jesus didn't spare himself undergoing the wrath of God. That's our only hope. 
that Jesus put himself in the place of his people and bore the penalty of our sins on his person and bore the wrath of God, an unpropitious God who poured his wrath on Jesus and turned his face from him. Oh, he says, God be propitious to you, oh Peter. You have no idea what you're saying. You're trying to seal your own doom. Had Peter, had Jesus listened to you, you would be hopelessly under judgment now. But Jesus didn't listen. Jesus listened to his Father. Jesus submitted to his Father. So indeed, he went the way of the cross. The, the shocking, that's kind of the fifth shocker, but it's really built into the third, the shocking death of the cross. Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for his people. It is indeed shocking. It's inconceivable to human thought, but it is God's way, and it's perfect in every regard. It's complete, and it is finished. It is accomplished. So the only thing that's shocking now is that so many hear it and turn away from it, and even more shocking that so many hear it and think it's not that important. That's shocking. May it not be true of any of us here. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from your word, and we thank you for how they point us gloriously to your Son and to his work that he came to accomplish and fulfill. Thank you so much for him, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised of men. He came to bear our iniquities on his own person, and with his stripes we are healed. Thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. And I would pray for anyone here who does not know him, who's not seen the great need that each of us has for Christ, that that person will see that today and come running to Jesus for the forgiveness that is to be found in him and in him only. In Jesus' name, amen.